1: It's the Wonky Show. This week, the bailout that's not a bailout. Uh, the new normal on campus. What does a socially distanced first term look like for learners? And governance. Either gets going again or gets in the way. It's all coming up.
0: You know, the whole of the Higher Education Research Act uh, was predicated on competition and choice. You know, that was the Joe Johnson mantra at the time. But, you know, if you if you read E6, it's basically saying, you know, please, please, don't, please don't go out there and compete um, because we'll bang you on the head if you do and uh and and i
1: welcome to the wonky show your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis i'm jim dickinson and here to cheer us up with their optimism and foresight as usual we have two excellent guests in oxfordshire serial non-exec director and general higher education big name mary kurnock cook mary your highlight of the week please
0: morning, everyone. Uh, so, my highlight was my dogs emerging from a, a scrutil in the woods and coming out, each of them brandishing a, a, a stinking, mouldering leg of deceased muntjac. It was completely disgusting, uh, but they looked so ridiculously pleased with themselves that it was definitely heartlifting.
1: Absolutely extraordinary. And in the southwest, Greenwich's director of student and academic services, Chris Shelley, is here. Chris, your highlight of the week, please. Well,
2: my highlight, Jim, was installing a hot tub in the garden of my mother-in-law's house where we've relocated for lockdown. So I've now got somewhere to escape from um, either work or my children.
1: Excellent. So, yes, we start this week with the bailout that's not a bailout. On Monday morning, the government set out its package for support for higher education. And it's fair to say there was a level of disappointment. Mary, what's your take on the package?
0: So, well, here we go. A couple of weeks ago, um, Universities UK asked the government, I think, for about two billion worth of bailout. And last Sunday, the government didn't oblige. Um, It did bring forward about 100 million of QR funding um, and it reprofiled the tuition fee payments from the student loans company. And I think that brings forward about two and a half billion of cash flow. Um, But that was about it. No new money, just a bit of slightly different timing. But, and it's quite a big but, it also announced uh, a temporary student number control and some new market smoothing measures. Now, the number control was at the level asked for by UUK, set at 5% over forecast, note forecast recruitment for UK and EU students. Um, and then there was a sort of hat tipping towards the more recent million plus proposal to allocate um, up to 10,000 places, mainly for essential worker training, such as <clears throat> nursing and uh, midwives. So there's a couple of things to note here. Um, One, that applicant demand across the sector, uh, and this was measured pre-COVID, is up by, I think, only about 1.2%. I think most people think that's likely to fall um, as students are put off by the virus fallout. So in my book, capping at 5% above forecast is probably only going to curb recruitment at quite a small number of universities. Um, And I think it won't do much to help those at the bottom of the pile who have suffered in any case since the student number controls were lifted uh, in 2015. Um, I think it's going to mean uh, quite a few universities who simply cannot fulfil their financial obligations. Um, And if you read Mark Corver's piece last week on Wonky, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the cap will only further depress uh, weakening demand from students. I've also been heard to say that a cap on student numbers is a cap on ambition, but that only (laughs) works if the cap is in any danger of being breached, and I'm not sure that it is. Um, Now, if those concessions were supposed to be the carrot, watch out for the stick, and this comes in the form of a proposed new regulatory condition, E6, which Smita Jamdar, legal beagle supremo from Shakespeare Martino, calls out for bringing broad, unspecific obligations, which will create risks of unfairness and oppressive behaviour by regulators and could lead to legal challenges. Uh, I'm wondering whether it'll become Higher Education's Dangerous Dogs Act. Uh, (laughs) If you're sorry about all the dog uh, references this morning. Um, Now, if you're feeling strong enough, um, do read the OFS consultation on this proposed new condition, read it and I think, probably weep. It's about as clear as mud how universities are supposed to try and maintain financial sustainability, condition D if you're listening at the back, uh, when their every marketing or recruitment move might be judged contrary to the interests of stability and integrity in the sector. Um, So while the OFS, through this uh, so-called cap and the condition E6, is busy trying to stop the sector from giving students perhaps a wider choice of courses this year, Um, It seems they're also supporting UCAS to enhance their clearing system, uh, seemingly making it easier for students to make what I think could be rash decisions to self-release into clearing and then be matched through Clearing Plus or whatever it's called through data to a suitable course. Um, I, uh, I just think throwing a bunch of new variables into an already pretty precarious and unpredictable uh, admission cycle um, feels a bit loaded with risk, but um, there we are. I just wish OFS had come at this more from the position of protecting current and prospective student interests. Um, I think if we helped students feel really confident about starting or continuing their studies um and what choices they were making you know that feels to me to be the place to start if you're wanting to protect the financial sustainability of universities but um a discuss as they say
1: Chris, what's your take on these, uh, you know, these these, these these traffic calming measures? Um,
2: well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's reassuring that the, the government have, have turned to the sector finally and, and put something on the table. Um, obviously, it was not what we were hoping for. I think at least with the uh, student number controls, uh, you know, for, for a lot of universities, as Mary says, we probably won't get near those kind of numbers, but at least it's, at least it gives us some, some wiggle room and some, um, you know, uh, uh, scope for ambition depending on what the market looks like by September, and of course that um, is likely to be very volatile in between now and then i mean i think we're interested in the future um the the uh, working groups that have been formed as part of this will be very interesting and i think on uh, especially around uh international uh recruitment um and, and what the the outcomes of that will be and um and i think you know it seems that the ofs have just taken this opportunity to give themselves a new set of teeth and perhaps give UCAS a new set of teeth as well um which uh, obviously it will sort of remain to be seen how uh, how strong they are and how willing they are to bite down. And very intrigued by this uh, this consultation on the um, on the new condition of registration and, and the, the language within that uh, broad and vague though it is, but sort of veiled threatening uh, as well around um, uh, uh, the you know actions which could bring the sector into disrepute or, or whatever it is, um, which which is very very broad and um, uh, and also makes a, a, an interesting assumption that um, that universities might be about to leap out and stop shouting about how badly other institutions are planning on dealing with this and it's very clear that it is naughty to uh, make claims about providers uh, quality of support or, or tuition um, when actually I think we're also trying to work out on what on earth we're all doing ourselves let alone guessing what the university down the road is doing and whether or not it's good or bad or ugly and whether or not we would then I don't know, put that in an email to an applicant? Um, I'm not quite sure how that would, how that would play out. But um, it, it just seems that they've taken the opportunity, I think, to, um, to, to tell the sector that they're watching us and that they want us to behave um, when actually what we're all trying to do is, is do the best thing for uh, applicants, for students and for our own um, sustainability in, in the near future, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, the list of behaviours, I think, is extraordinary, because it, it's really difficult to work out whether or not they are things that, you know, some people inside OFS have already seen, or whether they're just sort of, you know, things that they think they might see in their wildest fantasies, so well, I think that's fascinating. But Mary, I mean, you've been close to the kind of applicant process right throughout your uh, career. Well, if you, what, what is it that students are supposed to do, you know, applicants are supposed to do right now in terms of weighing up different providers? Because, you know, as Chris says, it's actually difficult to work out what providers are going to be providing in september
0: yeah i think i think that's right and um you know my uh, thinking would be that anything a university can do to reach out on a very personal basis you know literally phoning up one-to-one discussing it with offer holders um, is the kind of confidence that students will uh, will want and need, that somebody actually cares about them as an individual, as a person, and that they're not just part of a kind of herd of people wondering what the hell is going to happen in September. And, um, and I, you know, I do think this idea, you know, I am slightly worried about this kind of UCAS um, clearing plus stuff, you know, not... Um, not not the offer itself to match students to places, which is great. But if actually this is a an effort to get students to feel that they can change their mind at the last minute, when this is a a year when they've had less opportunity. You know, a lot of them won't have been to open days. Um, they won't have the opportunity to go to um, offer holders' open days, which would normally be taking place um, around now. <clears throat> and you know, to uh, to kind of destabilise them by suddenly putting lots of new choice in front of them I'm not sure is quite the best thing to do Um, so I think if I were uh, in a university at the moment I would be um, I would be reaching out on a very very personal level to every single um, applicant or offer holder.
1: Chris back back to this kind of big bailout question obviously you know lots of the critique of the package has been that it tends to it, it, it treats the problem in the sector right now as a liquidity crisis rather than a, um, you know, a kind of solvency crisis. And you know, is it, you know, what might happen if 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 we end up with you know an actual solvency crisis? Well, I mean, well, here's a phrase you might um might hear a lot now. It's becoming a new cliche in my
2: head, which is we just don't know. Um, and I think I think what we have to be doing is is continuing to feed in, um, via you know, universities UK and the and the mission groups, what we're seeing, what are the trends on the ground, what are the numbers telling us about the the student that may or may not be arriving in September and onwards. Because like you say, this 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 non-bailout um, is, is sort of predicated on the fact that everything will be normal in September to an extent. We're still going to have an awful lot of people applying and therefore paying tuition fees. And we're just going to make sure that you get that cash in your bank a little bit sooner. Well, actually, you know, my colleagues in finance will... Be reassured by that to a certain extent because they're worried about cash in the bank. But actually, you know, their biggest problem is the bottom line at the end of the financial year. So when that money comes in is less of an issue than is it coming in at all in the first place. Um, And I think if if the government at the moment feel that, um, you know, on on whatever basis it is that students will still be turning up in sufficient enough numbers to keep everyone afloat, um, then if that isn't the case, and if we start to see the evidence that isn't the case, and we start to feel that you know there's a real risk of institutions falling over because uh, you know applications have, have suddenly dropped. By fifty percent on on the same moment in, in last year's cycle, uh, then we need to be making that clear so that they can respond appropriately. Um, but yeah, at the moment they do seem to think that uh, that things will be okay, and it's just about helping us through a short term cash flow situation.
0: They've they've also bought themselves some time, haven't they? They've um, <clears throat> allowed themselves to be able to wait until they see where the recruitment chips fall in uh, in August and September um, before deciding what to do next um so rather than anticipating what students might or might not do and who might or might not turn up or enroll or uh, go into clearing etc they've um they've put the short term cash flow support in there and uh you know this will be revisited won't it you, you know as as we watch the the daily clearing data releases from ucas <clears throat> in the middle of august um, it'll start to become clear and Although we don't get provider-level data at that stage, um, you can bet your life that uh, UCAS will be providing that to government.
2: And of course, by then, it may be, may be too late to, to take any significant action. I mean, one of the things that concerns me is um, just the, the general tone. I mean, obviously, we're in a market, and obviously, institutions are competing against each other for students. But <clears throat> sometimes, I worry that the language in, in these kind of statements from OFS, it, it, it sort of undermines how well the sector works together. And I think, you know, the the GIST mail bases have never been as alive as they are right now. But But generally we are a sector that does talk to each other clearly marketing departments aren't going to share their tips and techniques and, and fundamentally when it comes down to it we've all got our targets to hit and we all need to make sure that we can survive but generally as a sector we talk to each other a lot we do share our best practice um you know wonky exists very much because we're all interested in learning what each other are doing and and while yes there is a, a competition within that market i, I think we, we shouldn't be underplaying the fact that right now the sector is trying to respond to this together and that actually you know creating more divisions between us won't help us do that uh, interested by um, sort of news coming out New Zealand uh, yesterday that implied that they're considering a a University of New Zealand approach for for the next 12 months to say we've just got to come together as a nation as a sector and provide one single experience to recruit as many students as we can make sure everyone survives and then take it from there and and I think that's a that's a very proactive approach to a problem Uh, we're not going to be able to do that if we wait until August and suddenly the numbers start to crash.
1: I mean Mary Chris makes a good point doesn't he that we have have a system particularly in England where, where the whole idea is that competition will cause an improvement in provision now you know we We could could debate that until, you know, the cows come home on on a different podcast about whether in normal times competition of this sort generates improvement and quality. But, I mean, it seems to me that it definitely doesn't right now.
0: Um, I I think that's right. And I think there's a real um, uh, conundrum for the government and for the OFS because, you know, the whole of the Higher Education Research Act uh, was predicated on competition and choice, you know that was the Joe Johnson mantra at the time but you know if you if you read e six it 's basically saying you know please please don't please don 't go out there and compete um because we 'll bang you on the head if you do and uh, and and I think this is very complicated um you know if the government really thought that competition meant just you know lots of nice universities offering nice courses that students would want to do and would support the economy and society and so on. Um but not make any effort uh, to actually recruit people to those courses when their income is predicated on how many students they uh, they sign up um you know that that was a quite a quite a naive view um now of course we've got um hopefully we've got a decade or so of of growth in in the size of the um the you know the eighteen year old cohort which will which will help a bit but the idea that universities um, can't go out and communicate to students why why they think their offer is a good one and why a student should want to come there is just um, it's not realistic in a in a market.
1: And, and 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 can I just ask you both? Obviously, we talk a lot about universities, but one of the things about the Higher Education Research Act is that you know it was was supposed to be you know the ushering in of the this you know large number of alternative providers. And to be fair. There are as of today, there are three hundred and ninety four providers on OFS's English register. And and I and I and I guess, you know, the question about whether ministers would let a university fail is one thing, but whether or not ministers might let some of the, you know, the narrower end of that long tail fail is probably quite another.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, you know, basically all of this is about the university sector that's you know that's what I, I can't remember what the numbers are, but it's probably 90% of the of the sector is the 140 odd traditional universities um, <clears throat> and uh, you know so nobody's going to be overly bothered by uh, some of the fallout at you know in the sort of long tail of small um, private providers. Um, and that's not what's going to hit the headlines either. Um, But a university um, falling over and, you know, particularly in the new political post-December election landscape. you know a lot of the you know what the, some people characterize as you know low quality courses are you know offered in in universities in the north and the midlands which were you know in those areas which um fell from labor to conservative in the in the last general election and I, I really don't know how that all squares with the kind of levelling up agenda you know not to mention the um the the, the local economic fallout of a university um, uh, going under.
1: Yeah, and 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 I guess look, Chris, we, we we did get a couple of clues as to what might happen if if and when this becomes a you know a solvency crisis. There was obviously a couple of lines in in the package about um you know a working group around research funding, and you'd have to guess that in the end that's the sort of money that would tumble into the kind of more elite end of the sector. And we've seen something similar in Scotland uh, later I, in the week. And then there was this other line, wasn't there, about the uh, you know restructuring if all else fails, and you know certainly we. we we, we, we've been looking at what's been happening over in FE over the past uh, three or four years and, you know, area reviews you know, lots of sticks, sticks and carrots to try and get FE colleges to merge into groups. Do you think we might see something similar in, you know, in HE? Uh, the
2: thing is, we've, we've, we've asked this question before, haven't we? And there's been moments in, in, in the recent past where we thought, okay you know, this is the government or the DFE or OFS or HEFCE or whatever's opportunity to start, uh, you know, enforcing mergers or taking control or whatever. And, and I think it just comes back to that question of, you know, how how strong are these new teeth that they're giving themselves and how willing are they to use them so that yeah they're hinting with with that sort of language that that those kind of steps might be taken i mean i still feel that they will want to make that a very very last resort and they, they will want to retain the autonomy of institutions so to speak as, as much as possible to get themselves out of whatever particular problems they are in and if the whole sector is facing it then that's a bit easier if, if, if some individual institutions have made some bad decisions or uh, have been particularly you know impacted badly because of their, their um, the nature of, the, of their provision or their location or whatever it might be um, they may need some specific help. Um, I would just like to think we're, we're still a few steps away from uh, essentially government intervention and, and forced mergers and closures.
0: I don't I don't know if you read um the Financial Times today, you know, and we've got uh, the Wolf of Downing Street, you know, Alison Wolf is is in there. Um I think um a few people might want to dust off the um, Auger report. Which, um, Jim, you, you'll remind me. Is it is it nearly two years old now?
1: No, it's almost well. well I mean, of, of a year and a half. Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on which milestone. Because of yeah. course, it was announced, and then we were going to get an interim yeah. report that never mm. happened. I mean, it does feel like it's been going on since my early childhood. But
0: yeah, it does, doesn't it? But I think I think we've sort of allowed ourselves to let that kind of drift into into the background, and it, it feels to me as if some of the You know, conceiving of this as a tertiary education sector rather than just a higher education sector and a further education sector and an adult education sector, etc., <clears throat> it feels to me as if uh, we probably need to reacquaint ourselves with with those kind of arguments.
1: And again, you know, I thought Boris, you know, I don't know if you heard Boris in uh, PMQs when, he, you know, his first appearance opposite Keir Starmer this week. But um, someone asked him a question about uh, further and higher education. And his answer was, it was, was really interesting because, of course, he talks about universities in the context of kind of elite research and, you know, trying to work out what was happening with Covid. And he talks about the further education system and skills. And I guess, you know, the interesting question there will be what happens to the really big FE colleges that are doing lots of HE work and what happens to, you know, the large number of, you know, post-92 universities that are doing lots of skills work? Because if if that kind of simplistic bifurcation between universities and research and, you know, coll- colleges and skills is what's in number 10's head, maybe, may you know, some of those ideas in AUG are about to come back
0: yeah and um you know and and weep when you think what it'll do for <clears throat> diversification and um access and widening participation i don't know if anyone um heard lord baker on on the very late new i think the midnight news on radio 4 last night um he was suggesting that um, all arts and humanities courses should be online and only stem courses should come back um face to face in uh, in september so um that's an interesting thought <laughs>
1: Well I mean if, if uh, as, as I have said on the site this morning, if you want to absolutely guarantee students feeling a deep sense of injustice, do go ahead and implement Lord Baker's proposal. Now um, <laughs> uh, very good thanks uh, we'll come back to some of those uh, but for now let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
3: So I'm Amate Doku. I'm a consultant at Naus Group, um, and prior to that, I was um, the vice president of higher education at the National Union of Students. And I've written a piece reflecting one year on after the closing the gap report into the uh, looking into the 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 BME attainment gap and what the sector needs to do. And in my piece, I sketch out some of the key recommendations around having conversations about race and culture, developing racially inclusive uh, environments. uh are recommendations around evidence and data and what works, and then really try to uh, talk a bit about what the implications are today, year on in a very different context with COVID-19, um, recognising that many colleagues will, who, who support this agenda will be concerned. They'll be concerned that uh, existing uh, BME students, their inequalities will grow as a result of digital poverty and, and other socioeconomic challenges. Um, they're more likely to, to be disadvantaged in this current structure, but also that many initiatives will have been switched off. And I make the point very simply that actually, given that uh, COVID 19 has driven uh, coaching horses through business as usual. This is the time an institution is much more um, receptive to change. And if you want to change the attainment gap, you have to make fundamental change. And given the changes that have happened over the last couple of months, this is probably the best time to strike.
1: And don't forget, we'd love to have your contribution on the site. If you'd like to pitch us a piece, do drop us an email at team at wonky.com with your idea, and we'll be in touch. Now, next up, our recording day for this podcast is Thursday, and today, along with our friends at Owler, we're running an event on No Buildings Next Term, as senior teams move some of the scenarios that have been worked up from wild ideas to concrete proposals. Chris, what does a socially distant September look like? Well, um, uh,
2: unprecedented, sorry, we, we just don't know is the new unprecedented, um, but we're, we're trying to work it out, we're trying to guess. And I think as um, the eyes of the nation turn to the Prime Minister on a Sunday evening uh, to see what uh, lockdown mark two looks like and uh, uh and to imagine what the immediate future looks like the, the eyes of the sector for a few weeks now have been very much focused on september and trying to imagine how that applies to um the teaching and learning experience uh, and everything else around it for, for university campuses um you know from a starting point uh, uh any kind of activity on campus uh, in september you know we'll have to follow whatever government measures are in place at that time and obviously um we 're guessing at the moment what that might be, so you know large very large groups of people presumably at that point will still not be allowed but how do you define the difference between small medium and large groups um, obviously uh, maintaining social distancing within teaching spaces uh, you know between one and two meters apart uh, will re- significantly reduce capacities of those teaching rooms so uh, working up different models of the timetable based on smaller class sizes is a starting point but you've got to pick a number. Are we talking 15% Uh, of your normal capacity, 20%, 25%? Actually, some teaching spaces will be different than others. You know, some that perhaps have got more than one entrance will be easier to uh, socially distance um, students uh, than others. Um, uh, If we are guessing that schools by then will be allowed back in then you can assume that groups of up to 30 potentially are going to be allowed because that's what class sizes are so is that a number to go on and the basis of you know we are we are having to guess, speculate, estimate and um, uh, and prepare for a whole range of different scenarios at the moment so um, you know just, just creating a timetable it's worth saying that the process of creating a timetable is a complex, difficult and time consuming one at the best of times um, so you know my timetabling team are just about in the in, in in the, in the process of, of wrapping up the first draft of the timetable for what would invert commas uh, normally be in place in september and actually now we've been asked to create one based on model a model b and model c as well and and uh, who knows if models a b and c will even uh, be what what comes out of it so there's a huge amount of work going on um in the background to try and model what these scenarios look like and of course w- within this we've got to try and deliver a you know high quality but equitable experience from a teaching point of view so if students can come onto campus. Then um, should they be able to? And we'd obviously want to facilitate that where possible. But the students that either can't come onto campus because uh, we aren't letting them, because we're, we're minimising the uh, um, uh, the lessons that will actually be taught on campus, or maybe the international students haven't yet been able to fly into the country, or perhaps they are having to socially uh, isolate themselves still because they are living with vulnerable um, family members or even ill themselves, um, then they've got to be able to get the same experience as much as possible, at least the same sort of teaching outcomes as those that are in the classroom. So, um, you know, we're looking at flip classroom models where the time spent together is much more discussion-based and digesting teaching rather than just sort of um, taking in information. Um, Obviously, we're also looking at how the timetable might, be spread out over the day and we're talking potentially about um you know more evening classes and that obviously has an impact on staff time uh, but also might be more um uh, acceptable for then students who are who are more remote so there are there are so many different elements of this to consider um not least the fact of course that um what happens in weeks one two and three of the term might be different to what happens in weeks four five and six of the term um if a, a second phase of lockdown comes in or all the measures change in in whatever way they do so institutions like ourselves all around the country will right now be modeling different scenarios with the, the, the aim that what we come up with is something that can be flexible uh, and uh, and applied to you know multiple scenarios but ultimately is, is still delivering a quality and equitable um, experience and and the, what that also then translates to is is the bits around the teachings So all of the professional services and all of the other activities that would take place on campus that are currently obviously being delivered remotely and actually I think some of that will be retained, actually, even w- well past um, the COVID crisis. We've learned an awful lot about how we can do things differently. And and some of our services will continue to be delivered remotely. Students should be able to access appointments uh, online if they need it. We should be doing uh, online virtual workshops to, uh, to to teach students around, you know, how to apply for post-study work visas or, or whatever. The sorts of things that we're doing right now. Um, but also, what I find interesting is we, we've we've grappled as a sector for... A long time with this. How do we reach this, this mythical? Group of students that we call commuters; um, these people that don't live on our campuses all the time and aren't automatically engaging with us on a face-to-face basis daily. Well, suddenly everyone's a commuter student. So the, the way that we're reaching out to our students right now um, can actually teach us some really valuable lessons for the future. So some of the things we've been doing, for example, working with our Students Union, uh, you know, calling every student in residence is directly to check on their well-being. Um, uh, you know, putting, uh, turning some of our services uh, into sort of virtual events. You know, creating virtual Events running them in the evening, putting a whole range of social activities and programs on, whether it's sort of fun things like games and you know um, Netflix parties or whatever, but also things like language learning and, and and you know just additional skills that we can deliver in a remote sense that still bring students together in that virtual way. Well, actually, we should be retaining this, and I think that uh, we, we we will be. And 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 what the whole student experience looks like after this, let alone after September or in September, will be will be quite significantly different. But you know, ultimately, we are having to model based on the guidance that comes out from the government, and I guess the first hint as to what that looks like will come on Sunday. But the the advice will change so much between now and September that our ultimate aim is to be as ready and prepared and as flexible as possible to deliver an experience from September, which the government clearly, as we've said, are expecting uh, us to be up and running at that moment in time.
1: Mary, obviously, there's a, there's a huge pressure at this point on on, on universities to to announce something, uh, not least because, you know, lots of universities in North America are saying they will be open to enrol. And I guess, you know, that international competition thing is putting lots of pressure on universities to announce. But there's a danger here, isn't there, that universities announce something when, you know, they're still in the process of working out what's possible and what isn't.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, people talk about the new normal. I think it's the new abnormal, the new turbulence. um and i'd like to think that there's some silver linings for um students you know if they if they find that actually the new unit post covid or covid um university experience means an abundance of um small group teaching for example i think that's that's probably a good thing if they have their lectures delivered through platforms and apps and then consolidated in smaller groups and, and the other thing i've reflected is that um you know students and universities are very resourceful that's you know that's one of the things we've i think has sort of surprised everybody in all of this is that um this uh, unprecedented situation you know people have people have just adapted to it haven't they really quickly and 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 i think that students will very quickly uh work out ways for themselves to um to keep themselves safe and and within their kind of comfort zone in in a potentially somewhat socially distanced uh campus i mean i mean it's interesting um that uh you know talk of a january start instead of a september start seems to have uh, faded out and I, I i think that's a good thing because i think it would be tremendously um disruptive to uh, to have you know one cohort going through on a different timetable to everyone else um uh, i think the you know it comes back to you know telling students uh what you're doing i think you know if 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 students were getting the kind of communication we've just heard from chris about what you're planning for Um, So that they so that they know you've you know, you are at least thinking about all of these different scenarios. I think that would be tremendously um, comforting and would be a big um, confidence boost to them. I think there's real problems around accommodation, Um, really, really worry about, um, you know, how universities and students can manage to make sure they've got accommodation when and if they're allowed to use it. Um, And that those who are, you know, who are not renting direct from the university itself, you know, how on earth we can provide um, protections for them so that students aren't having to live somewhere and pay rent for somewhere where they're not living. So, you know there are there are multiple um, complexities to this situation but i you know i think young people are very very resourceful and if we can keep them on side you know to know that they're going to be looked after whatever the whatever turns out to be the reality um i think they might even quite enjoy uh being part of a you know quite an experimental Um, term start this year and and of course universities are also going to have to be planning for whether there are future waves of of lockdown and so on so it is going to be very very different. But
1: let me ask you both this question so obviously to some extent there's been I understand why because it's the core thing that universities are providing there's been lots of focus on you know the kind of contact time the teaching bit the you know the seminars the lectures the labs and so on but you know for the 120 other hours a week that a student is awake and moving and so on if commuter students can't get on public transport and residential students have got to go back to their tiny room alone this isn't a viable student experience is it
0: uh that's where that's that's why i made the point about students being uh resourceful and i i think they would they would find ways of um uh meeting communicating um in you know within broadly within whatever the the rules of the situation are um and you know i've I've just observed you know my own i've got two grown up kids um uh, locked down with me here at home and um it's astonishing how cheerfully they've just you know kind of upturned their lives and readapted um and i you know i have great faith in young people to to figure out ways to make the best of things
1: Good stuff. Now, from designer PPE to improbably socially distanced lecture theatres, uh, the new normal for university life is going to look like a strange and unusual place in a few months' time. But how will it work and how on earth will we get there safely? Uh, kicking off our new series of events called Wonky at Home, uh, I'm going to cut through all the background noise uh, and big political debates to take you on a tour of the unique challenges ahead facing university leaders, students, and the whole university community wonky at home the new normal what will it look like and how will the universities get there is our exciting online event uh full details are available on wonky.com forward slash events Um, i'm going to take you on that tour and in response we'll debate uh all of the ideas with an expert panel hosted by wonky's editor-in-chief mark leach and mary stewart vice chancellor of the university of lincoln and some other speakers uh all, all all to come uh, who, who should who should come uh, leaders managers heads of department comms planning estates it everything in between academics wondering what on earth your university will look like later this year and indeed anyone interested in how universities will need to change in the months and years ahead 10 a.m to 12 p.m friday the 15th of may at wonky.com forward slash events see you at home Now, governance, it's probably fair to say that in the initial emergency period, governance got out of the way and allowed senior teams to crack on with crisis management. Uh, But there are big decisions about the future looming, and so governance is probably about to kick back in. Mary, you're a serial Uh, non-exec. What are some of the things governors ought to be thinking about?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, you're right, Jim. It's been a very challenging time for governing bodies, um, both to support the executive in the eye of the storm, and then, you know, at the right time, lifting their eyes uh, above the horizon and planning for a future uh, of, I I think, more unknown unknowns than we could possibly know. Um, um, But uh, from both sides of the boardroom table, executive and non-executive, I've always found it really interesting to observe how the risk registers um, stand up to the reality of a big hairy risk crystallizing. <laughs> and uh, and I found that, you know, there's rarely a risk register that's shown to have actually anticipated what, what then transpired. Um, I'm pretty sure that not many universities had actually planned for a pandemic and, and lockdown scenarios. Um, but uh, I think it's worth saying that universities who had the known unknowns well managed, you know, all the stuff that we do, um, cybersecurity, IT resilience, communication cascades, financial stuff, contract failure quality, and so on. um the ones who were doing that really well um, will have found that they had more headspace to handle the very specific fallout of the coronavirus crisis because their basic risk housekeeping was in um, good shape. I think, and and as we touched on earlier, I think it seems inevitable that a a restructuring of the higher education sector is in the sights of government, um, you know, accelerated and focused by this uh, existential financial crisis that many universities will be facing. Um, I mentioned the Financial Times piece this morning, which is worth reading. And the, the kind of non-bailout bailout underlined this. So governments moved to shore up short-term cash flow. And I think it'll then look at the financial and structural fallout when the autumn recruitment picture gets, uh, gets clearer. Um, and that gives it time to see which universities can be strong-armed into new arrangements. The narrative's It's been there for for, um, a long time now. Low quality courses, excessive debt, high salaries, too many graduates in non-graduate jobs. Um, And there's still, you know, a a big handful of old school Tories who think that too many people go to university. Um, And as I mentioned, we've got Alison um, (coughs) Wolfe, who was part of the Augur Review, advising at the heart of government in the Prime Minister's office. So I think governing bodies will need to be on the front foot. Um, They'll be needing to urge their Hard-pressed leadership teams to to make time, to find time, and make time to think strategically about the the future, um, and they'll need some imaginative and carefully positioned uh, responses if they're to avoid being you know done to uh, it by the government. Um, I think I think shocks like this can have a silver lining. Um, they provide a new backdrop and and a real kind of urgency for some zero-based strategic planning where all the old norms get thrown out of the window um so i think governing bodies need to start reimagining what higher education in the 2020s and beyond could look like and they'll need to do it really quickly i think they've got to have they've got to have something to put on the policy table so that the uh, the government doesn't eat uh, higher education as we know it for breakfast
1: and this this is a really interesting question, isn't it, Chris? Because on, on the one hand, you could probably make a case for governing bodies, probably th- which contain lots and lots of members that are really busy with their own organisations or you know careers or whatever, kind of stepping back and letting managers try and get through the you know the extended crisis. You can make another case that says, hold on, governing bodies need to step up, step in, you know, and and t- and take charge of these big strategic questions about you know either expenditure reduction or or, or you know where the university goes next. Yeah, that's right. And I think that
2: uh, you know it. it- the, the, the usual question of so where do you want to be in ten years' time actually now needs to be broken down probably into uh, you know asking ourselves what does the sector but also our university look like in in two years and three years and five years and ten years and where is it we want to get to but wh- how are we going to? Uh, you know, change shape and uh, and look different, and and get to where we need to be in in what could be a quite rapidly changing, especially for this sector. Um, uh, you know, look and feel and and, and structure, and and I think those you're absolutely right. You know, governing bodies need to be asking those questions and driving those questions. Uh, I mean, I think we're very look at the University of Greenwich. Our, our governing body is uh, has always been, um, I think, quite strategic uh, in its thinking and its planning and and its probing. Um, and we've just had a you know a new vice chancellor start just before Christmas, so we're already asking ourselves some of those fundamental questions but um, uh, you know immediately that's been uh, obviously slightly refocused um, and and actually imagining what the university looks like in ten years time is is impossible without imagining
1: what it looks like in two years Mary is the sector's governance fit for purpose for the sort of you know the size and shape of the crisis that might be coming um
0: I think one of the one of the problems um, is that um, strategic planning takes an absolute age uh, in universities more so than in any other organizations that I've ever been. Involved with because of the sort of democratic um, governance, internal governance uh, structures that are that are there. Um, <clears throat> so you know, I I, I find myself um, getting involved in, in university governance. That um, uh, that that sort of um, I've I've called it before the schizophrenia between professional services and and academics um, is 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 just such a, a real pity because I feel like both sides of the organization are actually trying to do the th- same thing and both need each other. I was you know I was really struck. I, I, I tweeted an article um from the Telegraph yesterday about um students wanting rebates of fees, which I think is an entirely reasonable position. And there was a kind of a stream of um of responses to it. On the one hand, parents and students saying, hey, you know, we're not we're not getting everything we paid for. It would be really nice if somebody recognised that. And on the other hand Um, a load of academics saying, we're working really hard, we're not shut, you know, this is, you know, I'm working till 10.30 at night, et cetera, et cetera. And and both are right. Um, uh, But for me, it really, um, it really kind of put the spotlight on this kind of um, divide between a, a, a reality between um the professional services and the academic side and i think if you know sometimes uh, you, you you need a good crisis to crystallize things and certainly governing bodies need to move quickly to to rethink what they're going to be like and to rethink how they can uh strategically position themselves in in a, a something that's conceived of as a more collaborative tertiary sector a more coherent tertiary sector and you know they can't take two years to do that and go through all the committee structures and so on so um so uh i i hope that um universities will feel that they can um alter their approach to strategic planning um and that they can find ways of bringing all sides of the university on board with that but not in the way that it's traditionally done uh,
1: now, now now finally um Uh, It's a bank holiday weekend, so I think we should try to identify something that is potentially, you know, a bit of optimism for the weekend. So, So mine is, and I've been saying this to a few people this week, I've got a feeling that in five and a half, six months' time, even if we still by then haven't got a vaccine or haven't got, you know, effective treatments and so on, that we may well have a much more sophisticated way of of slowing or halting the transmission of uh, COVID-19 than ham-fisted social distancing. You know, it might be civilian-style PPE or something. But the, the science, in five and a half months' time, may well have found out, found a way to enable us to get on public transport and live and work together in a way that we can't perceive of right. It now because it's still may and so my bit of optimism is I think you know there is at least a, a scenario where lots of this might be all right in five or six months uh Chris and Mary uh, your piece of optimism
0: um so uh I I agree with you um Jim I I, I was judging a, a kind of an innovation in edtech thing um a few months back and and I think I can't remember if it won or, or was in the highly commended but was um, a, a pandemic simulation, which is, sounds exactly like what they're doing in the Isle of Wight, and it was Bluetooth enabled, and students could, you know, they got allocated whether they were infected or not, and whether they had face masks and and vaccines and things or not, and uh, and then they were able to game it by, you know, by Bluetooth connections to other people who had the app on their phone. So, yeah, I'm I'm also optimistic, and you know, and I just come back to this idea that I just I just think the whole country has been um so extraordinary the way that it's adapted to you know a massive massive change in how we all live and work or don't work um <clears throat> how we live our lives and um and undoubtedly people are finding good things from from all of this um you know i'm certainly very cheerful about not having to get on a train into london three or four times a week um and uh and actually i find some of the Meetings that I do online are are, are very fruitful and sometimes they feel a bit more democratic than when you've got um, human beings, you know, in in a physical room together. Um, And uh, I I think this sort of rush to online um, is going to be really interesting. I think it'll be wonderful to see people get really good at using platforms and apps for learning. You know, I, I I keep thinking... You know, uh, young people, they listen to podcasts all the time. They use WhatsApp. They don't think of that as, you know, online communication. It's just communication. And I think if we could get to a place where it's just learning... And if it's mediated through, um, through a different platform or a different app, um, and we get really good at that, then it just opens up so many possibilities.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, look to the future optimistically, just because of how well and how quickly uh, we've adapted and responded so far. I mean, you know, I, I sit on many groups that meet monthly and in the last couple of weeks we've gone crikey didn't this didn't the world feel different the last time we met and and you know h- how much has changed in, in four weeks um, and obviously now we're sort of you know into week six and week seven um, as you say we're four months away from the start of term so an awful lot will change in that time but for a sector that is notoriously um, slow at changing itself and in, in universities are notoriously slow at changing ourselves while we're great at changing the world we've suddenly learned how to change things quickly and it's really been inspirational to see how um, you know, colleagues have done that and you know, my learning and teaching colleagues almost literally overnight uh, uh, preparing teaching and assessment be delivered in a completely different way and everyone gets behind it everyone gets on board with it uh, and suddenly it's there and it's available and and we're all working together to the same same goal and you know if the goalposts move again whether it's this sunday or uh, three sundays later or two months time then i'm very assured that we will be able to react we'll be better prepared because we'll have had more warning but um actually when we need to move
1: quickly we do So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at and we'll be in touch. Thanks again to our guests, Mary and Chris, to everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen, and of course to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?